0: Thank you for visiting theopenword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources.
1: Welcome to the next part of this series from Alan Schaefer. All right, let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason we're doing this, of course, is when you look at the life of Christ, A few of his sermons are most notable, and this is one of them along with the Olivet Discourse. Probably one of the better known sermons. Now, when you look at this particular sermon, oh by the way, I told those of you that joined late, I I know this is bad news, but there's no midterm. I'm just going to give you a final. I know you're really bummed out about that. I know it really bothers you, but you know, that's just the way it is. I don't know what
0: I'll ever do now. Yeah. What am I going to do with my
1: life? Yeah When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, this is probably one of Christ's most well known discourses. And it's one of the five great discourses in Matthew. Um, And the thing to understand, too, is that it's probably not everything Christ said. It's probably a Cliff Notes version of the whole sermon. But it gives us an insight into his teaching. All right? And. um, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount there's a lot of there's a lot of questions about uh, the views of it um, and D.A. Carson has a long um, set of it, a long discor- or long uh, section in his book the Expositor's Bible commentary it talks about several of the views we'll just quickly look at those um, some said well it's an exposition of the law to drive men to grace this is a Lutheran position all right. Some say no, it's a roadmap to moral social behavior. This is the social gospel. People want to make it a moral, ethical kind of sermon. Um, some say there's a set of moral standards to teach morality um, within Matthew's community. What does that mean? It means Matthew was writing this to his community as a sermon, putting the words in the mouth of Jesus so that Jesus would say what Matthew wanted his community to hear. That's the, the drivel that you get here. all right. Jesus really didn't say it, but Matthew said Jesus said it in order to lend credence to what he was trying to say. Um, there's a set of ethical standards applicable to all believers of all ages, sort of the Mennonite, Anabaptist position, um, a summons to personal faith and decision, a proclamation of an interim ethic. In other words, it's an ethic between the Old Testament and the establishment of the church for the gospel period of time. By the way, this is where some of the hyperdispies land. They say Some hyperdispensation, if they were sitting in the class, say it's completely irrelevant whether we study this because it's not applicable to us. It was written to somebody else. We don't even need to understand what it says. Whether we understand it or not is completely irrelevant. And then some say it's an intensification or radicalization of Old Testament law. What does that mean? Christ said, you've heard it said by them of old, but I say to you. So he's redefining it. Some say, well, it's, it's really a, an ethical law that's applicable to people alive in the millennium. It really doesn't apply to us today. And there are some that bring it sort of all together. All right? Um, and I think and the collective view is probably closer to it. It is a description of the behavior of a kingdom citizen. What does a, a citizen of Christ's kingdom look like? how do you tell what they are and Christ lists some of the characteristics here um, and by the way the moral truths in it are repeated elsewhere in the New Testament so what would that tell you yeah I can take them you know it doesn't I don't have to say well I don't have to do that because it's talking to somebody else while well, the same things repeated in places where it does appeal apply to me so it's irrelevant in that regards so what is the character of kingdom citizens what what is it that a kingdom citizen looks like? And we see it here in Matthew um, in Matthew, and the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, we have the Beatitudes. Now these are not the be happy attitudes that Shuler has come up with. Why do we call them the Beatitudes? Well, blessed are the, and then Christ gives a description, blessed are those. And he starts out with humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now what's he referring to here? Well, some say, well, blessed are the poor. Wait a minute. That's not what he said, right? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? That you,
2: you're not, your spirit, you don't have any, that you're not, maybe you're not a believer. So
0: you, your you spirits are down. You don't have the low self worth, maybe. You don't develop yourself.
1: Yeah, being poor in spirit means that you realize that before God you have nothing to offer. You come empty handed. You don't come to God saying, "You know, God, you're getting a real deal. If I, if I come to you and become a believer, you're getting a real deal." What means to be poor in spirit it means you recognize your utter... I like what, what uh, Steve Lawson says, your utter, total, abject bankruptcy before God. You have nothing to offer Him. You realize your utter bankruptcy, spiritual bankruptcy. So you know
0: who you are.
1: You know exactly who you are and you say, I have nothing, I am not self-sufficient. I have nothing to offer God. There's nothing redeemable about me. Now that's in contrast to who? Pharisees. What did they think? God owed them. God owes them. God owes them. And I don't have time to develop this fully. Look at the notes. It'll develop the idea fully. I I can't do that here. We'd never get through it. Then it says, Blessed are those who mourn. Over what? People are just sad. It's no. talking about spiritual, comp- a spiritual component here. Blessed are those who are spiritually poor in spirit. They don't. They realize they have nothing to offer God. Then blessed are those that mourn over what? Over death? Over what they do
2: or
0: lostness? Yeah, they lost. recognize what their sin has done.
1: They are mourning over their sin. They are coming broken before the Lord. This, this is important concept. If the gospel you preach does not bring people to an understanding and recognition of their sin, you've got an adjusted gospel. So when you hear these boys on TBN who turn the gospel into a business deal where God's going to make all your needs, fulfill all your needs, and fulfill all your dreams, that's an adjusted gospel. Christ said, you want to come to me. You want to, be, you want, you want to come to the kingdom. If you want to be part of the kingdom of God, first of all, you are poor in spirit. Secondly, you are broken over your sin." And if you don't come that way, you've not come in the wicket gate, in the terms of John Bunyan. You've not come the way of the cross. He says you need to be broken over your sin. He said only those that mourn over their sin will find the comfort of God. And then what's meek? Blessed are the meek. Meekness means you come to God, you're not asserting your rights. You're not asserting anything before him. You come with your head bowed.
2: knowing
1: Knowing your place. They are content to depend totally on the power of God and his purpose, allowing him to make things right. They're not out to assert their own rights, their own desires, their own wants. Put it put another way, they come to God on his terms, not theirs. They are meek. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, compare this to the average gospel invitation today. People are told to come to Jesus. Why? Because
2: then he will supply everything you want. Yep. He you, you what you want. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want, you
1: to What should you want?
2: Material. I mean, they talk about material things. Right.
1: He says, Bless those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What do you truly desire? God showed up right now, popped into the room, and said, Okay, I'll give you anything you want. You name it, it's yours. What would you want?
2: Relationship. With you?
0: Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandment. So really when you think of righteousness, it's an expression of how much we love the Lord. Mm-hmm. So if we're really thirsting and hungering after righteousness, we recognize that this relationship we have with God is, is dependent upon how we live our lives. And we want to live our lives in a way that Causes this relationship to flourish.
1: You want to bring joy to the heart of God. I often thought, you know, when I go in, my prayer time again is on the way into work in the morning, and often I pray, "How can I bring joy to Your heart today?" When Your name comes up around the throne of God, does He beam with joy, or does He sort of have a little bit of a frown? Are you hungry for righteousness? Do you want to be righteous? Do you hunger for that? Are you merciful? Why? Why should you be merciful? Because you got it. You show me someone who lacks mercy, I'll show you someone who doesn't understand the mercy they've been granted by God. Why is it that we are to be merciful and Compassionate to others because God's been pretty merciful and compassionate to us. And us being merciful shows that we have a concept of his mercy to us, his forgiveness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You want to see God? What do you want to be pure in heart? And that's the hard part, isn't it? Is it easy to be pure in body or pure in heart? Which is easier?
0: You know, one thing about pure in heart, nobody knows what's going on between your ears except you and God.
1: That's where the real battle is, isn't it? You know, it's easy to stand up and say, you know, I've never committed adultery, but it's a lot harder to say, I've never done it in my heart. I've not stolen anybody's property, but I've done it in my heart. I've never murdered anybody, but you know, I hate some people. Pure in heart—that's a tough part. And and again, I love what it says in John, in John or Psalm 15. Who does God hang with? He hangs with people who tell the truth in their heart. What does it mean to tell the truth in their heart? They don't cut themselves slack. They don't see themselves as more godly than they are. They they have a a right perspective on their own wickedness.
0: That's really what you can say about David, who the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. Yep. He did a lot of despicable things, but in the final analysis, he understood it and he was open and willingly confess it to God.
1: Mm-hmm. Blessed are the peacemakers. What does it mean to be peacemaker? Well, peace with what? What's the greatest peacemaker you could be? Yeah, bringing people to have peace with. God, to tell people about Christ. Blessed are those that want to bring peace and not division. God hates division. Try to be a peaceable person. Blessed are the persecuted. Why? They persecuted me, they'll persecute you.
0: Really, if we're real Christians, we should expect to be
1: persecuted. Yeah, now that flies in the face of the touchy-feely gospel you hear on TBN and from Joel, doesn't it? If you're persecuted, you just don't have enough faith. You've not bound the demons sufficiently. You need to claim the victory of God. Christ said, in the world you have tribulation, be of good cheer. I have Overcome the world. So as a kingdom citizen, what should you expect? We
0: should be overcomers.
1: Expect persecution. Now I'll eternally overcome, but you know what? I may not overcome in this life. What did Christ say in Revelation? Be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. Whosoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it that's the great I don't know great contradiction of the Christian life you get everything by giving up everything you win by losing you get wealthy by giving it all away that's the way it works Christ is saying you want to be part of the kingdom you want to come you want you want to be a true follower of me are you broken over your sin Do you see yourself as spiritually bankrupt? Do you see yourself as having nothing redeeming before God? Do you come on your knees asking his forgiveness and receiving his mercy? Because if you don't, you're a thief and a robber. So any gospel presentation that leaves that out is an adjusted gospel. blessed are the pure in spirit blessed are you when you are persecuted why because it shows that you're truly a member of the kingdom of God or you wouldn't be persecuted does the world persecute its own no. no it persecutes those who are not of its own so the Beatitudes are not how to be happy it's how to enter the kingdom how do you get in the kingdom you get in the kingdom by coming the way of the cross and I love the imagery of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. You come through the Wicked Gate. And Christian often met people who came or they were on the road, the path to the celestial city. They say, well, how did you come? He said, well, I, I climbed up over the wall by the byway and got in. And he asked him, well, did you come by the Wicked Gate? No. Well, then you've not come the way of the cross. What's the influence of the kingdom citizen? What are you to be? 5.13-16. through 16. You'd be like salt. What's salt? In the ancient times, what was salt?
0: Flavoring.
1: Flavoring preservative. Was preservative? Mainly, it was a preservative. A... You're to influence. Christians are to be a godly influence in this world, sort of as a preservative, as an influence to bring taste, to enhance the taste. Now, most Christians, do they enhance the taste of the world or not? No. No, they're obnoxious. Right? You want to make sure when people reject Christ, they're rejecting Christ because they don't like what Christ says, not because you're an obnoxious person. Make sure they reject for the right reason. Some have said, well, salt is referring to the stinging when you put it in a wound. Some say it enhances the flavor. Some say it creates thirst. It's possible that all of these or have some element but I think the major thing is preserving agent I mean they salted pork they salted meats what did that do that preserved the meats in those days before refrigeration you salted your meats yeah and if you lose your saltiness what are you good for nothing
2: nothing
1: Nothing. how can you lose your saltiness how can you lose saltiness How can you take salt, table salt, and make it unsalty?
0: Separate the two ingredients that make it.
1: Or what else can you do?
0: You, it water.
1: you mix it with impurities. A Christian who gets mixed up with impurities, what happens? You lose your saltiness. You become contaminated.
0: That should tell us how important the truth is.
1: In those days, if you were contaminated salt, what do you do? They threw you out. You were useless for nothing. And then where to be light? You don't you don't light a lamp and put it on a under a bushel basket. Stick it under a bed. What do you do? You set it up on the shelf. Why? So it can give light. It's like the idea there is you have a, a lamp, you know, a little carousel or it was an oil lamp with a wick in it that burned. And where would you stick that lamp? Well, you put it up on a shelf, you put it up high. Why? So the light would spread throughout the room. You don't stick a bushel basket on top of it, that doesn't help any. Let your light shine before men. Are we ashamed for people to know that we're Christians? Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Don't hide the light. What will the light do? It will draw people to the light, it will expose their sin, right? Expose who they are. Christ said, be light, your light of the world. And then he says, and again, we're flying through this. I would really encourage you to look at the notes. What's your relationship to the Old Testament law? What about the Old Testament law? Well, Christ says, you know, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to do what? Yeah. The idea of destroy there means to make of no effect, to abolish, to release from under. And this is an important thing to understand. Sometimes Christians think that, well, Christ came to replace the law. No, he didn't come to replace or destroy the law. He came to do what? Fulfill it. In what sense did Christ fulfill the law?
0: Into perfect,
1: life. Two ways. One, he fulfilled its requirements. But I don't think that's really what Christ had in mind. What does he have in mind here? What did the law point to? He pointed to him. Pointed Christ. He fulfilled the law in the sense that he is the fulfillment of what the law pointed to. Don't you think, too,
0: when you look at the Old Testament, they were working outwardly toward the inward? And now, with Christ and the Holy Spirit, we're working inwardly, and mm-hmm. the outward is just a the fruit of what's going on inwardly
1: right here's the other really thing that's really cool to understand when you look at Romans eight, it talks about in romans eight eight chapter eight there's therefore no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that is weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. What's he saying? All right. In order for me to stand before God, what must I be? Sinless. Sinless. How can I get sinless? You
0: can't on your own merit.
1: What are only two hypothetically possible ways?
0: Completely fulfill the law.
1: Right? Or through Christ Jesus. Have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Those are the only two possibilities. Notice why I said, one of them is theoretical.
0: Mm-hmm. All ever right?
1: done it. No one's ever done it. Right. All right. So in what sense has Christ fulfilled the law in us? It's really a cool concept to get in your head.
0: May I'll tell you what sinners. I've been taught. I have been taught in your own efforts and your own strength, you can never fulfill that law. Right. But when you get born again, somebody moves in your heart, and that is the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, when we develop a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, he He bears witness to Christ. He leads us into all truth. He also empowers us. Because the Bible says it's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit. Mm -hmm. So now we live this life as a Christian through the power and the leadership and the anointing of the Holy Spirit.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And that spirit at work in our life will change us. Mm -hmm. It will alter us into the image of Christ Jesus. Right. It will not force us, it will not... Go against our will, but we have to submit ourselves to that Holy Spirit and to the Word of God. And when we do that, it will do that work. Mm-hmm.
1: That's that sanctification. That's the okay. Sanctification. All right. But when I look at here and I say that what, in what sense is the law fulfilled for me? It's fulfilled in this sense. Try to understand what. Follow what I'm trying to get at here. It's fulfilled in the sense that Christ perfectly fulfilled it. So that the purpose of the law, that is to define me as righteous before God, is done not because I did it, but because Christ did it.
0: So what we lost in the first Adam, we got in the second?
1: Yes. We, I have. When I stand before God right now, how does God see me? Through the eyes of Christ. He doesn't see me through the eyes of Christ. Right. He sees me. In Christ. So, in Christ. how does He see me? Am I perfect or not perfect? perfect? I'm perfect. I'm righteous. I'm as righteous as Christ is. Why? Because I am righteous. No. 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 That's, if you say it's because you are righteous, you're a Catholic. Because yeah. Catholics believe that the righteousness in what does it mean? It's within you. It's it's part of you. It's an innate characteristic of you. Are my righteousness is not an innate characteristic of me? My righteousness is the imputed righteousness of Christ. So in what sense is the law's purpose fulfilled to me? The law's purpose is to make me or to define me as righteous before God. It's purpose fulfilled, not in a sense that I actually did it all, but that Christ did it for me. Is this making any sense? But
0: mm-hmm. so we're told to live soberly and righteous oh, yeah. in this present age. We're, without holiness, no man can see
1: God. Right. We're talking about your standing here, not your state. You're talking about the state. My state is up and down. My standing before God is I'm perfectly holy. And why is that? Because Christ is my righteousness. And that's what Paul said in Philippians. He said, I want to stand before Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is by the law, because that's the only righteousness I can cook up on my own. But the righteousness which is of Christ, the righteousness of God by faith, that's the righteousness I want. I want his righteousness, not my righteousness. So how is the law fulfilled in me? The law is fulfilled in me in the sense that I am made perfectly righteous before the law. I am declared not guilty because Christ gave me his righteousness. It's been imputed to me. Is that making any sense? Now there's another component that Gary pointed out. Although I am legally declared acquitted, justified, holy, righteous before God... I still have my flesh I still struggle in the flesh I still have to submit myself to the Holy Spirit I still need to walk in the spirit all right I still need to crucify the deeds of the flesh yes that's a that's true but as far as God as far as the legal penalty of the law is concerned all right I am no longer under the law in, and I'm not under the law in what sense? Not that I don't have to do what the law says, no. I'm not under the law in the sense that I am condemned by the law because I've perfectly fulfilled it in the sense that Christ fulfilled it for me.
0: The Bible says the kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. So really, we reach that kingdom life on this earth. We, we live our life and we submit our life to God and the person of the Holy Spirit, which is God. Mm-hmm. So when you stop and think about it, all that God is, all the power that God is, all the knowledge that God is, everything that God is, moved inside of me when I got born. born. Yes. So the whole provision for saving my soul has been given to me at my new birth. Yeah. And God never fails. And so, as long as I trust in Him and, and let Him lead and follow Him, I'm good to go.
1: Yeah, and, and the thing is, and again, you got to make the distinction here, and, and we spend a lot of time talking about this between your standing and your state. My standing before God is, you know, the gavel is dropped and He says, acquitted. Why? Because I kept the law. No, because Christ paid the penalty for me.
0: And He goes back to I'm acquitted fruit bears evidence right? of the
1: Spirit. Right. So, so as far as the penalty is concerned, as far as the condemnation of the law is concerned, I don't have that. But what do I now do? I need to walk in the Spirit so that I would not fulfill right. the lust of the flesh. I will never stand before God and give an account of my sin. But because I am born again, now I want to be holy. And the
0: law and the prophets are
1: all... all right? this. And when I die, and when I die, what happens? Well, then I'm perfectly holy. All right, but the idea here is Christ is saying is that he he did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. He did not come to to abolish the law. And see, that's one of the things that the Pharisees taught that when the Messiah came, he was going to abolish the law and create a new one. Christ says, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. In one, in two ways. One, I'm going to keep it. But the second thing is. I'm going to fulfill it in a sense that, that I'm the one that the law was pointing to. And what is the law here? The law seen as his broadest general concept, which is the revelation of God. It's not just the Ten Commandments, it's the revelation of God. When you look at the Old Testament sacrifices, what do they point to? Christ. Christ. He fulfilled them. The imagery, the all the imagery in the Old Testament law, it's fulfilled in Christ. That's what it's pointing to.
2: Alan, I was reading that messianic jew uh, jews beliefs that uh, use that verse to say that all believers should s- still be eating kosher Yeah. Or should be eating kosher. That's
1: a, yeah
2: um, that would that would keep other the dietary restrictions still apply because of that no nope. even now yeah. yeah yeah well that's his whole thing is,
1: yeah. Must have
0: stock some
1: come. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we look at uh, in, in 521 through 26, we see anger and recon- we can only fly through this, we're running out of time to get through some of the b- other parts of the Sermon on the Mount. But now Christ basically says um, you've heard it said of them by old time, but I say to you now, when he says you've heard it said by them of old time, he's going back to the traditions, he's going back to what they have been taught. And he says, you've heard it said by them of old time, don't kill. But I'm telling you, if you hate somebody, what have you done? Now, some say, well, Christ is redefining the law. Is he? No. What's he doing? He's
0: giving you God's intent.
1: Tell him, this is what God really... In-. He said, you guys are the ones that redefined it. That's your problem. The problem is not the law. The problem is not God. The problem is your understanding of the law. You reduce the law down to things that you could keep. The intent of the law was never, ever, ever just not to stick a knife in somebody's back, the intent of the law was not to hate, which is the same as killing somebody. It,
0: Jesus said he came to bear witness to the truth. Yeah. Yes, and to speak that which he heard of the Father. So everything Jesus is teaching here is something God once said, and he sent his son to he tell him. It, yeah.
1: He sent his son to straighten out the huh. misconceptions. But
0: did the Pharisees
2: have a number of, of laws that they had made up. Yep. Did they have like well, they made
1: up laws. They made up laws, but they redefined the law that God had originally given. See, to the Pharisee, it was okay. He, he was righteous as long as he didn't stick a knife in somebody's back. But he could hate Gentiles and be perfectly righteous. And God says, no, if you hate somebody without a cause, you are as guilty as, you, as killing them. And then he says, well, what about adultery? You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you think it in your heart, you've committed adultery. And these Pharisees, they would never probably commit the act of adultery, but they often thought about it in their heart. And he said, you've heard it said, be a person of your word. If you swear by the temple, you're bound. But I'm telling you, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Why? Be a person of integrity. See, they created a system where they could lie legally. And Christ said, that's not the intent. The intent of thou shalt not lie is... You are a person of your word. How about God? What, what kind of person is God?
0: Absolute truth.
1: If God says something, it's true. It's true. All of it. Mm-hmm. He never lies. Mm-hmm. And if He tells you He'll do something, what happens? He doesn't. he doesn't. He doesn't lie about it. So, what should we be? If we want to be like Him, what should we be? Yeah. If you tell somebody you're going to do something for them, what should you do? Do it. Now, as Christians, we have a way of getting around that, don't we? One of the, fun, one of the things you're going to find, Gary, when you start your a, a church and you have a deacon board is you might have a system where you know a person becomes a deacon for three years. And you're going to run into some guys about two years through. They're going to say the Lord's leading them elsewhere. And all you need to do is look them in the eye and say, no, he's not. You're leading yourself somewhere because you made a commitment. And the only way God would lead you away from being a deacon and breaking your commitment is he would kill you.
2: into ministry?
1: If you make an O, if you make a promise, what does the Bible expect you to do? Keep it. keep it. You keep it. Or you have to go back to the person you made that promise to and negotiate but you always keep your promise. I've had men in this church, when I was chairman of the deacon board, I had guys who said, yeah, I'll be a deacon for three years. Two years in, they say, well, the Lord's just really leading me. In my, I don't feel this is what God wants me to do. No, wait a minute. No, wait, wait. God doesn't lead you that way. Why? You made a commitment. You keep it. Now, if you're telling me that, that your company it's closing up in Illyria, and you have to move down somewhere else. That's a different issue. But to just say that God's leading me somewhere else because you don't feel like doing it—wait a minute, that's not God. You made a commitment. You said you'd do something. God expects you to keep your word. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. And if you don't, what are you? You're a liar. Oh, I'm strong on this. I, same thing with your bills, you know, other people that, you know, I, I had a friend of mine who had trouble paying his bills, and his response, was, well, if God really wanted me to pay my bills, he'd give me more money. Uh, Whoa, all right. Wait a minute. Yeah, where did the, that's pizza and beer, if there's ever pizza and beer. A lot of
0: beer.
1: You keep your word. Hey, be a time. This, this is the point, as a Christian, we should be noted as people who keep our word. That, that, that word should be kept if we say we're going to pay something, we pay it. If we say we're going to do something, we do it. If we say we're going to be there, we're there. How does church run if, if the, our pastor said, you know, I'll be there on Sunday. You know, if it strikes my fancy, I'll be there Sunday to preach. If not, you know, we'll think something. He just didn't show up. Showed up whenever he wanted to. No, he wouldn't. be a person of your word that's what Christ is saying here you need to be a person of integrity when you make a promise you keep it when you say you're gonna be there you be there there's a whole discussion on divorce I'm not gonna even get into that one we can talk about that later and then he says um, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek what are you to do um, yeah. what does that mean Please don't retaliate. Why aren't you to retaliate? Because if uh, everyone <coughs>
2: gives an eye for an eye, the whole world's
1: gone. Yep. This is not talking, by the way, just so you understand, this Christ is not talking about justice here. He's not talking about allowing injustice to occur. But he's saying it's not your right for personal vengeance. Why is that? Well, when people mistreat Christ, how did He treat them? Did He call down fire from heaven and smoke them? No. No. He
0: said, "Father, forgive them
1: for they know not what they do." You want to be a kingdom citizen? If you're a kingdom citizen, you realize what God has done for you, and you're tolerant to other people. And when you're mistreated, you don't try to mistreat back.
0: I tell
1: you, the hardest place to live this out in your Christian life is
0: on the job. It's on the job and in your home. It's when like your wife, way, you
1: work yeah, and, <laughs> when your wife is crabby with you, you're not allowed to be crabby back. Yeah. When when somebody mistreats you in the job, you're not allowed to mistreat them back. When somebody says something bad about you, you're not allowed to say something bad about them. God forbids retaliation. Now, if somebody commits a crime, there may be consequences for that crime that they have committed, right?
0: Then you have to do what's good.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't mean that if somebody steals money from you that you know, they, they, don't, they aren't um, taken to the court or something. That, it's not talking about that. It just means you don't seek personal retaliation. I think this really goes along the lines of suing another believers. You have no business doing that. No business. And you know I've, I've you know I've, I've uh, had situations in my life where I've been taken advantage of, and God'll have to take care of it. I'm not going to seek retaliation an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. No personal vengeance. Why? God will take care of it.
0: Can I tell you something I have found out through experience? When people know that you're that individual that doesn't retaliate, there are a few individuals that you'll run across in your life that they'll take advantage of that. And I mean, they will just do all they can. Mm Mm-hmm
1: if you want to be like Christ yeah now that doesn't mean you set yourself up right and it doesn't mean if somebody is stolen from you you give them more money that's not what it's talking about there but it does mean you don't seek personal retaliation personal vengeance Because he says, you know, he says it's easy. He says you're supposed to love your enemies. It's easy to love people that love you. And if you do that, you're no better than the tax collector. You want to be a cut above the tax collector? Now to the Pharisee, the tax collector was the bottom of the barrel. They were the crud underneath the crud at the bottom of the barrel. And he says if you love people who love you, if you invite people over to dinner who invite you over to their house for dinner, you're no better than the tax collector's. You want to be like your father in heaven. What do you do? You love your enemies.
2: That's what I was just asking you earlier. You know, Christ loved everybody. You say, "Yo." So is this the same thing? Yeah. When I'm saying this, say like um, the person that lives next door to me, and I know for a fact that they're they're of a different religion, um, and they don't, and they literally don't love Christ. And, they, and they, they, they should see the. So do I'm, am I supposed to love that yep. person
1: still? You're supposed to show them the love of Christ.
2: I just continue to show them yep.
1: love. In spite of what they do to you, you show them love.
2: And I know they don't love Christ.
1: Yep. What kind of Christian do they want them to be in contact with—a sourpuss cranky old bitty lady oh. next door, or someone who shows them the love of Christ? All right. So you want to be a bitty, or somebody who shows the love of Christ? Yeah. <laughs> cranky old lady or do you want somebody to show the love of Christ Mm -hmm. and then Matthew 6 he talks about uh, hypocrisy he does in several ways he says you're a hypocrite why in the way you give your alms you blow your trumpets you sound your you know mr. big donor comes into your church and he wants to let everybody know that he's the one really funding the whole enterprise Christ says and this is an interesting thing he says they have their reward and the the word used there the greek word means they've been paid in full What does it mean? They got their reward. In what sense? They got their recognition. God owes them nothing. God's saying, if you give your alms in order to be seen of men, that's all the reward you're getting. I'm not owing you anything. You got your reward. Rather, what? Don't let your left hand know what the right one's doing. And then he says, "Uh, you show your hypocrisy by your long prayers. Pharisees are really good at this. Because they had certain times of the day they would pray. And they just so scheduled their day that guess where they were when it was time to pray? Right in the middle of the traffic. And they would stop and do their Shema or whatever it is they were doing. And God says, you know what? You're like the heathen pagans who think that they're going to be heard for your repetition. Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. Does God know what you need? And said, I'll tell you what. Instead of doing it in public, enter into your closet. Now, there are some Christians I remember that take this seriously and they have this little prayer closet they go in and pray to. Somehow that gives their prayers an extra boost if they do it in the closet. That's not what Christ is saying. He's making a, he's making a contrast. Instead of doing your prayers in public, do them in Private, in fact, go into a closet if you need to. He's not saying that's where you should be praying. He's just he's making a contrast. Now, is it wrong to pray in public? No, no. no. But what were the Pharisees doing? They were planning right. the prayers. You ever hear? You ever have people in your church that pray in King James English and all flowery speech? Mm-hmm. You know what?
2: They ever say they you know, what
1: say? Yeah. That's vain repetition. I think another way we pray in vain repetition, we say the same thing. Can you you ever pray in auto mode? Yeah. You go and pray to God, and five minutes later, you you know, your brain's wandering all over the place, but your brain, your mouth is still going. Yeah, but your brain... And if there's anything that Christ says here in Romans, or not Romans, Matthew 6, pray with your brain engaged. Think. It's better to go and just talk Talk to God like you would talk to somebody sitting next to you. You don't need to use King James English. Mm-hmm. The best example of this I remember is Howard Hendricks was talking about a man he had met on the street one day, and he witnessed him, and the guy came to know the Lord. And he said, uh, you know what, We're, you have church tonight, Bible study, I'd like you to come. And so the guy showed up at prayer meeting. And here's Howard Hendricks, who's a theological professor at Dallas Theological Seminary with all these high, muckety-muck Christians have been Christians for all this time. They, they, they went around the room and they prayed. And you're all these guys were praying. Finally it got to this guy who just came a Christian. And Howard Hendricks said, his prayer went so long like, uh, you know, God, this is Joe. Uh, I'm the guy that met you at the corner of such and such a street. And you know I can't pray like these other guys. I don't know the words. But I just want you to know I love you. I want to thank you for saving me. Now, who did God hear? Peter
2: He Jill.
1: You know we think we got to pray in all this fancy words, and we got to do all of this. That's not going to get you heard by God. God's listening for the heart. He heard the prayer of Joe. He didn't hear the prayer of some of these other boys. God looks for sincerity. What is in your heart? Why are you talking to me? Are you talking to me because you're told you have to do it morning, noon, and night? Are you talking to me because you've got to check some box off on your spiritual discipline so you can turn in the church and make the pastor happy? Are you talking to me so you can sound erudite in front of all of these people in church? Are you talking to me because you want to talk to me? you don't need long prayers you need a prayer from the heart be like Joe and then Christ says uh, about your fasting what do you do well what they did is they had fast every week I think it was Tuesday and Thursday or something like that Monday and Thursday one of those and um, they would uh, dust themselves up for the fast you know they would wear their not too good clothes they would you know not comb their hair They'd look a little bit gaunt, like they were really going through you know trouble. Now quite honestly, folks. can most of us here skip a day of food, and not nobody recognize it? Oh yeah, we could probably skip a few days of food, and nobody'd really notice it. Yeah. but what were they doing? They were doing it in order to be seen. And God's, Christ said, "If you do that in order to be seen, guess what? Painful. You got your reward? Means nothing. Means nothing at all. God hates hypocrisy. And and this is is the big, this is a 20,000 foot picture. Why do you do what you do? Why do you pray? Why do you give money to the church? Is it to be seen? Is it because there's some. Spiritual pride component you're trying to meet, or is it because you love God and you just want to talk to God, whether somebody's there or not? God wants you to engage your brain, and this is the big. This the big. This really hit me a few years ago, and I finally got it. God is much more interested in why than what. A lot more interested. He's not as much interested in what you do. I mean, there, there's a sense in which that is important. But God is much more interested in why are you doing this. And I love the story back in Zechariah chapter 8 where the guys come to Zechariah and they say, do we keep the feast of the fifth month and the seventh month that we've done these last 70 years? Should we be keeping these these fasts? They were, they had two fasts. One of them was to commemorate the destruction of the temple and the other was the fall of Jerusalem. We keep doing this for the last. We've been doing this for seventy years. This guy still wants to keep these fasts, and Zachariah says, "Well, let me go ask God." So he goes and asks God. He comes back and he says, "God wants to know why you're doing it." He doesn't say yes or no. God says, "Why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you're truly commemorating this because of what happened and you're broken over your sin? Or are you doing it just because you've been doing it for seventy years?" Well, if you've been doing it for seventy years, forget it. They don't Why are you going to church? You going to church because that's what you do every Sunday? Stay away. If you're coming to church because you want to be here and you want to meet me and you want to worship, come. Why are you giving your sacrifice? Because you have to. If you're doing it out of grudgingly, keep your keep your sacrifices. Why are you giving me money? You want it? You doing it out of obligation? I don't want to keep it. Why do you do it? You do it because you love Him. God's more interested in why than what. That's what you see in his section on hypocrisy. He's not saying don't give alms, don't fast, don't pray. He's saying do it with the right heart attitude or don't do it. And then he talks about here um what well, gives up the, the prayer here, the Lord's prayer, the model of prayer, and we don't have time to go through that i I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to read the notes here on that, some good stuff and then what do you then um what do you do with your money? What's the kingdom citizen's attitude towards money? Where do you lay up treasure here? Now look at the average Christian in your church, how much stuff do they have that they don't need? Oh, gonna... And a lot of times they say, you know, well I can't give to the Lord's work this year, Pastor, because you know I gotta pay for my vacation home and my Harley. What's wrong with that picture? Or they
0: have the reward.
1: Now, now look, is it wrong to have a second home necessarily? Right. No. no. But at what price? At what cost? I think this is one of the insidious things of debt. Most Christians today can't give to the church because they're in debt up to their eyeballs. Stanley, Stanley can somebody help me? He drives his new car, he belongs to the golf club. How do I do it? I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. Could somebody please help me? You know, I love that commercial. You know, and it's like, wait a minute, what's your priority? Christ is not sitting here saying it's, not, it, it, it's wrong to have nice things. It's wrong when things have you. Where's your treasure? A lot of us are, you know, there are a lot of Christians investing so much in their life down here, they have nothing for heaven. It's like the guy who, uh, the, the apocryphal story where the angel told him, and said, well, you know, you're going to die in a year. And you're allowed to bring one suitcase to heaven. You can put anything in it you want. And a guy liquidated all of his assets, all of his millions of dollars, and bought 99.99% pure gold bars. Well, tell me and he wound up in heaven and he opened up a suitcase. And the guy said, well, What are you bringing more pavement for?
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <an> yeah. <laughs> is, is it wrong to. But I'll I'll say myself. Is it wrong to send tithes to another church? Or, I mean, can you support another church as well as your own church?
1: Why not? Why Why are you doing it?
2: Because I believe in the other church also.
1: Fine. Now, some pastors say, no, you bring all your money to my church. No, it doesn't say that.
2: It it doesn't bring all...
1: Don't even go, don't go to this. T- don't go there, that's not a church that does not apply to you. I'm sorry, it does not, it does not any more than you should go back to Malachi and learn how to bring your goats and bulls down to the church they haven't sacrificed. No, it does not. God says, as he has laid on your heart, give. If God has laid it on your heart to do that, do it. And don't let anybody browbeat you into not doing that. That's something between you and the Lord. God will provide God will provide for the church. And I say that having a pastor in here. God will take care of your church. And when you sit up and you're beating people, and when when you beat somebody and they're giving a tithe to your church and they're giving it because they don't want to get beat up by the pastor, does it count anything for them? No. Don't. God says, God loves a cheerful giver. That's the whole point. You know, if I go home, if I work really hard, and I go home, and Donna makes my favorite dish, which is chicken El Paso. I love that. It's really good stuff. She hates it. I love it. And I come in, and she takes the dish, and she, uh, there you go. Hope you like it. I'll tell you what, it's my favorite dish, but am I going to want to eat it? No. No, Why? She didn't really want to do that for me. She didn't want, she didn't make it because she loves me and she wanted me to enjoy the meal. She made it out of some obligation or something. Doesn't count. And yet, how many of us go into church and, you know, we drop our money? There you go, God. I hope you'd like it. God said, you know, you might as well just keep it. That's your attitude. I don't want it. Why are you doing it? Bring your money. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Why? Because if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what will he do? He'll take care of the rest. You can't outgive God. And then what do you do in Romans in, in Matthew 7? We're going to go a few minutes over. Is that okay? Yeah. All right. Matthew 7. The kingdom citizen and others. Uh, how do you treat other people as a kingdom citizen? Well, don't judge them. Now, People love this passage. Because how do they use it? Judge not lest ye be judged. How do they use that?
2: They try to put a gift trip on you because if you judge others and then they think that you have right. um, you sin and you try to judge somebody else yeah. say, well, you probably did the same thing but only in a different form. That's how they use a gift trip on
1: you. They try to use that. Let me tell you what Christ is saying. Christ is not saying completely throw out discernment. Why? Because you have church discipline. The church discipline, are you in a sense passing judgment on somebody? Yeah. Your
0: brother in a fault.
1: Yeah. Go talk to him. All right? This is not talking about this. What this is talking about is passing condemnation on somebody as to their motives, their intents. Do you know the intent of their heart? No. No, you don't. No. This is talking about censorious condemnation, which the Pharisees were very good at, by the way, weren't they? They're very good at condemning other people and not seeing the sin in their own life. They're very good at that. I'll never get an example of this one time. It was one of the deacons here at Church of the Open Door. We had uh, one of our pastors a long time ago, our, our music pastor, had a moral failure and he lost his position and uh, a few weeks later this deacon, I was chairman of the deacon board at that time, he came really upset that we would even dare allow this person to this person stood up in front of the church and repented of his sin all that he was livid that we would even consider forgiving this guy. I mean just wanted his head on a platter I mean he wanted his head on a pike by the pulpit, that's what he wanted And I was trying to figure out, you know, what in the world is wrong with this guy? I mean, sure, there was this, but what is going on? Well, come to find out, at the same time he was demanding the head of that guy, he was sleeping with a woman that was not his own. In fact, he divorced his wife. Get the speck out of your brother's eye, and you got a log coming out of your own. What is Christ saying here? Christ is saying, first get the log out of your eye, and then what will you see clearly to do? Help your brother. Yeah. He's not saying, don't help your brother. He's not saying that. Well, what's it say in Galatians? If you see your brother overtaken and fault, you which are spiritual, go restore. The word restore there refers to mending a net or, or mending a, setting a bone. I remember a friend of mine who I had to confront, and his response to me was, well, you're not allowed to judge me. Where do you get that? Well, Matthew says, judge not lest ye be judged. And his idea was, you have no right to tell me anything or judge me because you're bad if you do. Wait a minute, that's not what, John, what Jesus is saying. By the way, did Jesus judge people? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. How about Paul? Paul says, you know, that guy who's sleeping with his stepmother, if you don't throw him out of the church, when I show up, I will. Was Paul judging that person? Yeah, he was. But it was not a censorious judging. And that's what Christ is talking about here. A censorious, hypocritical judgment of other people. It's sort of like Ted... I love it. When was it? They had that... I remember this. Ted Kennedy was on the... I remember he was on the the Senate committee when they were trying to... Uh, to approve Clarence Thomas, you know, and Kennedy was there grilling him on his supposed sexual harassment and I'm saying here's the number one sexual harassment person on the planet on this stupid committee grilling this other guy, I mean if there's well ask Mary Jill Kopechny what she thought about that you know, um, listen what this, is, what this is saying is this when you see other people sinning You're to exhibit compassion, care, and a loving confrontation to restore them, not to call all your friends on the phone and talk about them. And not to condemn them. And not to set yourself up as some great, wonderful Christian person. Well, I would never do that. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? What did Peter say? Oh, all these other guys will run but I'll be there at the end I said yeah right yeah right It's talking about being judgmental it's, it's not taught it, we, we can't condemn another person's motives I don't know what their heart is I don't know why they do it all I can do is say look you're, you're, you're in sin you, you need to be restored and there's a whole discussion here on you know this whole concept of restoration and how to confront them. And he's saying, um, you need to be discerning in your speech. Don't throw your pearls before swine. What does that mean, to throw your pearls before swine? Put it this way. I'll I'll tell you what it's like. The Word of God is something extremely valuable, right? The gospel is a valuable thing. Are you going to expose it to mockers? Mockers. Mock it?
2: People
1: that will mock you. No. Now some say, well, you know, you need to preach the gospel everywhere. Let's say say the Lorraine County Association of Atheists and Agnostics calls you up. And wants to set up a debate between you and one of their head agnostics, and the only people that are going to be there are their group. Would you go?
2: No, I'd give them your email. I would too. I, thought, I think the same thing. I thought we'll call Ellen. <laughs> and then we'll
1: all go. Not, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. Would you necessarily? Why? Because you go win. It's a yeah. setup. They're not going to listen. They're they're gonna not going. They're going to mock. They're, you can't you can't. You can't do that. <clears throat> Don't. Th- Did Christ do that? No, he didn't go. Did Christ go up to the mockers and try to no. reason with the mockers? No, he
2: baffled them. No, he with
1: didn't. Parables. No, he didn't talk to didn't them. Talk. In fact, he told them parables, and why? So that so seeing they, they may not hear? see, and hearing they may not hear. So they Look, we are, we you're, individually we are to present the gospel to everyone. We are to be ready to do that. But there comes a point when and and you know these when these situations come up we're presenting the gospel in this situation you know it's like thro- taking my my precious pearl which was the most precious, precious gemstones of that day and throwing it in front of a pig what's the pig going to do with that gemstone chew it up. gonna chew it up trample it underfoot there's no appreciation for the value christ said don't cast your pearls before swine pick
0: your yeah
1: yeah you know, it, stop and think about this. When, here, here's a primary example of this. When Christ was taken before Annas and Caiaphas, how did he respond to them? Why? I'm going to cast my pearls before swine. That that's God will give you the ability to understand when you need to keep your mouth shut. But sometimes the right thing to do is to keep your mouth shut. Because it's not, yeah. Um, he says you need to be discerning. And how do you love other people? Well, love them like you would want them to love you. All right? Um, I like ask, seek, and knock. What does it mean? Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Why? Because then it will be open to you. God wants persistence in the right thing. God doesn't mind that. If you ask for wisdom, seek for something, knock for it, God will open. Why? Because he wants to give you the best, doesn't he? He says, what father is going to give his son a serpent instead have something good, right?
0: I know a preacher that tells his flock, when you pray for it once, that's all you need to pray for.
1: No, because there's a parable in Luke that says the persistent widow, Yeah, she kept knocking. Yeah. I think sometimes God says how bad do you really want this thing? Now now look at look at here's a good example. Jacob. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Jacob said I'm not going to let go till you bless me. Mm-hmm. And he wrestled all night long saying wow. I'm not letting go until you bless me. Mm-hmm. How bad do you want it? Yeah. Uh, and, and God honors that because God honors the person. Look at the widow, the woman who pressed through the crowd to touch the hem of his garment. How bad does she want healing? Really, really bad.
0: God's a reward of those that diligently seek
1: it. And sometimes God just says, I'm going to just see how bad they want this. How bad they want it. Are they going to stick to it? Then he, he's, Christ ends, of course, his sermon with this great, Call two paths. You got the straight path, straight and narrow, the wide and broad. Two gates. What's he doing here? He's, He's saying there's only one of two possible responses. You don't have many. A lot of people say, Well, you know, they got all these ways back to God. Listen, there's one way back to God. And Christ said, There is a narrow gate, it's hard to get in it. It's a narrow path. It's hard. But where does it lead? It leads to eternal life. And then you've got the broad path. What's that? That's, that's the easy way. And who's at the head of the gates? Prophets. And what are they saying? This way to heaven. Those Jehovah's Witnesses come to you to say they don't say, Hi, I'm, I'm from the church of, of the Kingdom Hall down the street. We're all going to go and burn in hell forever. We'd like you to go with us. Or the people from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Hi, we Mormons, and we're going to go and suffer forever in the lake of fire. We'd like you to suffer with us. They think they're going to heaven. They're not. Now, how do you get, in, how do you get on the narrow path? How do you get in there? You come through the narrow gate. And what is the narrow gate? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. That's the narrow gate. It's a gate of self-denial. And Christ says, both paths say heaven, but only one actually goes there. And if you don't go that path, you're not going to go there. And why is that? Well, many are going to wind up in heaven in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not? So I don't know who you are. By the way, just because you do wonderful things in Christ's name doesn't mean anything. Look at the Catholic Church. Why are they doing all this? They're doing this in the name of Jesus. Got the wrong Jesus. We did all these wonderful works in your name. I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you that work. To me, and again, I've, I've said it before, to me that is the number one scariest passage in the entire Scripture. It's one thing to go to hell and know you need to go there, and you deserve it. It's another thing to wind up there and scratch your head trying to say, what happened? I preached the gospel. I, I I, was the pastor of the biggest church in the city. What am I doing here? This isn't right. Look at all the charitable things I've done. In Mother Teresa's account, look at all the wonderful work she did. Did she know Jesus? Nope. I mean, that's like showing up at the White House. I, I've thought of this. You know, it's like me going up to the White House and knocking at the front gate, you know, wherever it is there. Yeah, front front gate and say, hi, I'm coming here to see Obama. Why should I let you in? Well, I, I'm, I'm the head of the local Grafton Obama society. I'm the, head of his, I'm the president of the fan club. Yeah. I know all about Obama. I know where he was born. I know his family heritage. I know what he likes for breakfast. Yeah. So what? So what? I voted for him in all the elections. I talk about him everywhere I go. I think he's the greatest president of the 21st century. What are the chances of me getting in to see a barrack? Not very high, are they?
0: Can't be on the list. He's got to know you.
1: That's the. That's what that. That's Matthew seven. You got it. You stand in front of a guy and say, "Well, I was the. I was, I was, the head of your fan club down there. I, I was the head of the church. I, I. know all about you. I, I. I know what you like. I know what you dislike. I. Yeah, but I don't know you. I don't know you. That's the point. And you're also like a man who does what? Well, you've got two guys that build a house, right? One of them builds his house on rock. What happens when the rain, rains and the wind and the floods and all that come?
2: Rock doesn't
1: the stays there. The other guy builds his house on sand. By the way, both of them, notice what happened to both of them? They both got the same storm, the same floods, the same wind. Mm-hmm. But if you build your house on the rock, the truth of God, what happens? When the storms come, it stays. If it's not, when the storms come, it's washed away.
2: You know, what I what the little kids say, smashed. Yeah. <laughs> it's, smashed. it's smashed. That's right. That's right. It comes yeah. crashing down.
1: Christ is calling for a decision point. Narrow way or broad way? Easy path or hard path? Are you a foolish man or a wise man? What will be? There's no ambiguity here. It's calling for a decision. Father, thanks for tonight and for teaching us in this hour together. Help us to ponder these truths. Thank you so much for saving us. And may we proclaim the unadjusted gospel. Don't need to change it. Just need to preach it for what it is. And you will draw those whom you will draw. We just thank you for this time to challenge together in Christ's name.
0: Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.